The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Good morning. Welcome to our Vasati Center half-day sutta study with um, the Brahmajal Sutta. My name is Andrea Fella, and I'll be leading this class today. And I do have some handouts, um, two handouts, one of the sutta itself and some supporting material. Um, so as I mentioned, the text that we're going to be talking about today is the Brahmajala Sutta. And so the handout that I, I've given, I provided two handouts, one of the sutta itself, which is the one that has Brahmajala Sutta on the top, and the other is some supporting texts, um, mostly sutta material that I found was helpful in uh, elucidating some of the points in the, in the sutta that we're going to talk about. Now, the text itself is quite long, as you see. This is double-sided, pretty small print, so that we could save a few trees. Um, so we are not going to read the entire sutta today. I'm going to um, kind of overview it for you and then go into some key areas. But I wanted you to have a copy um, because there's a couple places where uh, we will refer to some areas of the text. And did you have a question? It's still a little loud, maybe. Um, how's that? Is that better? Is that? Can everybody hear with that that volume? Um, so we're not going to read through the entire text, nor are we going to read all of the supporting material. Uh, again, um, and, and I may not even. Uh, tell you sometimes when uh, I'm most of the quotes that I will be using today will come from this supporting material and again I wanted you to have this so that you could see the context of the quote and also the reference I've included all the references and who translated the references in the supporting material so we won't be um, reading through all of these today but I did want you to have the, have them so this sutta, the Brahmajala Sutta, is the first discourse in the Diginikaya. And the, the Diginikaya, the sutta collection consists of a number of um, collections of works that compile the uh, the words, the teachings uh, of the Buddha, as best as we understand it. These are the, the actual teachings of the Buddha. And this discourse is the first discourse in the first collection. So it kind of stands, when people put this collection of suttas together, um, they they gathered them based on various, Similarities. So the Diginikaya is a collection of long discourses. The Majjhima Nikaya is a collection of middle-length discourses. The Samyutta Nikaya is a collection of discourses that are connected on a various theme. The Anguttara Nikaya are uh, collected based on numerical uh, similarities. So just some, some themes like that. But they put this, the, the Diginikaya, as the first collection. And this sutta is at the is the first sutta in that collection. 
And as Bhikkhu Bodhi points out, um, that, that there's probably a reason why they put it at the beginning. And his understanding is that it kind of illuminates what what one would need to understand about the Buddhist teaching in order to begin the path. So we might say that uh, this sutta defines what the teaching is not. And that is actually the title that Maurice Walsh gives to the uh, the sutta in his translation of the sutta. The, uh, there are several translations of the of the Brahmajala Sutta. The one that I've given you here is not the Maurice Walsh translation. This is a publicly available translation on the internet, uh, which I could use freely. I believe this one was translated by Reese David. I, I forgot to include that on the, the paper, but I'm pretty sure that's the version that I, I pulled this from. The Maurice Walsh, Walsh version is the one in the commonly available book. Um, this is the, the Majjhima Nikaya published by Wisdom, translated by Bhikkhu Bodhi, and the Wisdom publication of the Digha Nikaya is translated by Maurice Walsh. Maurice Walsh. So that he gave that uh, the name of this sutta, what the teaching is not, and I kind of like that because it it highlights really kind of the theme essentially of this text. So the we can think about the 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 uh, the Buddhist teaching. Um, if we think about the Buddhist teaching as consisting of the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, and we look at the Eightfold Path, the um, first factor of the Eightfold Path is right view. And one definition of right view is, or one way to be clear about right view is, one discerns wrong view as wrong view and right view as right view. So one way to see or understand right view is to get clear about wrong view. And that is what this sutta does. It basically outlines a major class of what the Buddha defined as wrong view. This class being speculative views. Bhikkhu Bodhi gives a definition of speculative views as metaphysical theories, religious creeds, and philosophical tenets concerning issues that lie beyond the reach of possible experiential verification. Metaphysical theories, religious creeds, and philosophical tenets concerning issues that lie beyond the reach of possible experiential verification. So the Buddha's take on speculative view, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't hold them in terribly high regard. And there's several suttas that, uh, that point to this. So in the supplementary text handout, on the first page, uh, 
the, the first sutta in that, or the second sutta in that handout. Um, I'm going to discuss a little bit about this. So in the Buddha's day, there were a number of philosophical questions that the many of the religions of his time were trying to answer, purporting to answer. And when he was asked if he um, held any of these views, he responded no. And so this first page here uh, basically is a list of the various views. Somebody has come to the Buddha and said, so what about this view? The cosmos is eternal. Only this is true. Anything else is worthless. Do you hold that view? And he said no. And it goes on with a set of ten views that basically seem to, in some ways, contradict each other. Okay, so if you don't hold the cosmos is eternal, then how about the cosmos is not eternal? Do you hold that view? And he says no. And it goes on. So when he got a chance to give a little more a discussion about this after having gone through all the views, he said the position, and the term here that this is a Tanjef, Tanisaro Bhikkhu translation, and the term here that Tanjef is translating as position, Bhikkhu Bodhi translates as speculative view. So this term position is the same as speculative view. He says, the position, the cosmos is eternal, is a thicket of views, a wilderness of views, a contortion of views, a writhing of views, a fetter of views. It is accompanied by suffering, distress, despair, and fever, and does not lead to disenchantment, dispassion, cessation, to calm, direct knowledge, full awakening, unbinding. And he goes on for all the other views and says, likewise, the view the cosmos is not eternal is a, is a thicket of views, a wilderness of views. After that discussion, uh, Vachagata, the person he's talking to, says, well, do you hold any position at all? And the Buddha's response is here, the last line of the last paragraph a position is something that a Tathagata has done away with. What a Tathagata sees is this, such as form, such as origin, such as its disappearance, such as feeling, such as its origin, such as its disappearance, such as perception, such are mental fabrications, such as consciousness, such as its origin, such as its disappearance. Because of this, I say, a Tathagata without the ending, fading out, cessation, renunciation, relinqu- with the ending, fading out, cessation, renunciation, and relinquishment of all construings, all excogitations, all eye-making and mind-making, and obsession with conceit, is through lack of clinging, released. So this gives a sense of the Buddha's I don't know if I want to call it view of speculative views, but his his take on speculative views. He also, um, in another sutta, and this is the next sutta, and I won't uh, go through that entire sutta, 
but it is there for your, you to read. It can, it's a kind of an amusing sutta. He compares a person, this basically in this sutta, uh, uh, one of the, the Buddha's um, disciples comes to him and says, I'm going to leave the order. You haven't told me whether the cosmos is eternal. You haven't told me whether the cosmos is not eternal. And he even says, he says something like, um, If one doesn't know or see whether the cosmos is eternal or not eternal, then in one who is knowing and unseeing, the straightforward thing is to admit, I don't know, I don't see. That's uh, the second paragraph of the, on page two, the second uh, sutta. And the Buddha basically re- replies, well, so come. Did I ever say when you joined the order that I would tell you that um, the cosmos was, that I would declare to you any of these things? And he said, no. And he goes on to compare a person who demands to know answers to questions like this to a person who's been shot by an arrow. And um, do we lose the sound? I think it's. it seems like uh, there, that's better, yeah. Um, to a person who's been shot by an arrow and is deathly ill and, you know, calls a physician, they, his friends call a physician to get to, to, to help him. You know, he's suffering with this wound and the, the man with the wound says, wait, don't take the arrow out. First, I need to know whether the man who wounded him was a warrior, a priest, or a merchant, whether the bow with which he was wounded was a longbow or a crossbow, whether the shaft of the arrow with which he was wounded wounded was bound with the sinew of an ox, of a monkey. So he basically compares the speculative use to someone who is insistent on knowing that kind of information while suffering. The Buddha says, I teach suffering and its end. In that same sutta, at the end of that same sutta, or not at the end, um, um, here it is, at the, it's um, the second to last paragraph. The, no, the last paragraph of that sutta on page three. He says, when there is the view, the cosmos is eternal, etc. There is, oh, it is not the case when there is the view, the cosmos is eternal, that there is the living of the holy life. So basically he says when we hold these speculative views, we cannot move forward in our spiritual growth. So these are some pretty strong statements about speculative views. So the Brahmajala Sutta claims to be exhaustive with respect to the views 
and the grounds of views with respect to this, this category of speculative views. In the Brahmajala Sutta itself, on page six of the handout, about the middle of the page, let's see. Is, it, is this right? Paragraph 35, it says. Okay, so the bottom of that page. For whosoever of the recluses and Brahmins are such and maintain this, they do so in these four ways. So in this particular category, this is paragraph 35, page 6, the bottom of page 30, uh, bottom of page 6, paragraph 35. They do so in these four ways or in one or another of the same. Outside of these, there is no way in which this opinion is arrived at. And for every class of views that the Buddha describes, he provides uh, what, what he calls our grounds or supports by which somebody would come to that view. And so for this particular class of view, which is the class of eternalists, there are four grounds that he has, has said. You know, there are these four ways that people come to this view, and we'll go through that in a moment. And he says, outside of those four ways, there's no way in which this opinion is arrived at. And he does that for every class of views that he describes. And he basically describes 62 grounds for about eight kinds of views. And he says over and over again, outside of these, there is no other way that this opinion is arrived at. So the sutta is claiming to be exhaustive with respect to this class of speculative views and how they are arrived at. Now this actually seems to be questionable whether it is actually exhaustive. Um, one of the main resources I used for this uh, study is this book, The All-Embracing Net of Views by Bhikkhu Bodhi. And it is basically a um, translation of the sutta plus the commentaries on the sutta. And I find this, this was, it was interesting. I'd never read a sutta plus its commentaries before. And it was a very interesting exploration um, it really kind of opened my eyes to the commentarial world. Um, and it was, there were some startling things about it <laughs> to me. So there's th this book. And Bhikkhu Bodhi did a, a wonderful, um, about a 50-page introduction also, which is really worth reading um, in terms of getting an understanding of the sutta and its commentaries. And Bhikkhu Bodhi points out that the, the sutta does not seem to be uh, comprehensive. And his, his comment is, on reflection, it seems that many views from the history of philosophy and theology can be called to mind, which resist being neatly classified into the scheme the sutta sets up. 
while other views can be found which agree in their basic credo with those cited in the sutta, but appear to spring from causes other than the limited number the sutta states they can all ultimately be traced to. So we will not have time to go through particularly all of the views in extensive detail of of the views and which ones are uh, seem to be uh, exhaustive or not. Um, but I wanted to bring this up in the interest of kind of in the interest of disclosure, you know, that this is something that the sutta says, and it is it is a questionable point. So um, I want to have this be a kind of an since there's not that many people here, I want to have it be a, an open day with relatively free to discuss. Um, so I, I, let's just see if there's any questions or comments at this point about what I've said so far. Um, and, and we will use the mics for this since this is being recorded for the Internet. Nothing? Okay, I'll go on then. So right now what I'd like to do is to kind of go through the the structure of the sutta, to kind of take us, walk us through the the overall structure of the sutta. So we get a sense of how it's put together and um, and what it discusses. So the sutta begins with a a, uh, a scene from the life of the Buddha. He's walking on a road uh, between Rajagaha and Nalanda, and uh, he's got a group of his monks walking with him. And following behind uh, is a group of another sect, another religious order. And um, there's apparently a kind of an argument going on between two of the people in that order, the, the leader of that order and one of his students. And they are uh, arguing about the Buddha and the Buddha's teachings. They're, the, one of the, the, the leader is basically dispraising the Buddha and the student of that leader is speaking in praise of the Buddha. And here's some handouts for you. <laughs> Um, and if anybody else comes in, we'll have to share. That was the last. Oh, well, I could give somebody this one. Um, so this, the whole discourse is set up around this um, theme of praise and blame. And it kind of forms a structure uh, around which the sutta is. It's, it's, it's like the, 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 the parts of the sutta are hung on these themes of praise and blame. So at some point, the Buddha hears his monks discussing this conversation and takes it as, as an opportunity to, for a teaching on praise and blame. And I particularly liked this, um, this aspect. It was a beautiful teaching. And so it, this is paragraphs five and six. On the first page, if outsiders should speak against me or against the doctrine or against the order, you should not on that account either bear malice or suffer heartburning or feel ill will. If you on that account 
should be angry or and hurt, that would stand in the way of your own self-conquest. If when others speak against you, you feel angry at that and displeased, would you then be able to judge how far that speech of theirs is well said or ill? That would not be so, sir. But when outsiders speak in dispraise of me or the doctrine or the order, and this is where I, this is what I highlight for myself, you should unravel what is false and point it out as wrong, saying, for this or that reason, this is not the fact. That is not so. Such a thing is not found among, among us, is not in us. But also, if outsiders should speak in praise of me, in praise of the doctrine, in praise of the order, you should not on that account be filled with pleasure or gladness or be lifted up in heart. Were that to be so, that would also stand in the way of your self-conquest. When outsiders speak in praise of me or the doctrine or the order, you should acknowledge what is right to be the fact saying, for this or that reason, this is the fact, this is so, such a thing is found among us and in us. So to me, this is a beautiful um, teaching around working with praise and blame. To not be reactive, but to look at what is fact and what is not fact. This theme of praise and dispraise points in a kind of an indirect way to the larger theme of the sutta, this, uh, the theme around speculative views and identification with views. Because elsewhere in the suttas, it is, it is said and it is understood that one who identifies with a particular view experiences agitation when one is praised or criticized. So on page three, close to the bottom, there's an excerpt from the Sutta Nipata where a questioner says to the Buddha, so this is the the supplemental uh, one, not in the Sutta itself. The questioner says, those who maintain a view in dispute, saying this alone is true, Is criticism all they experience? Don't they also receive praise? And the Buddha responds, What they receive is trifling, not enough to bring them any peace of mind. I say that there are only two consequences of dispute, praise and criticism. Seeing this, you should not dispute. Regard instead non-dispute as the grounds for peace. So he's pointing here to the the notion, and this this is apparently what was going on in his time with all of these speculative views. The people would get together, get together, and and argue and dispute around these various views, and receive this praise or criticism, and get agitated or elated. Yeah, Mike, and um, the the mic. Now, when the Buddha says dispute, or is he talking just about disputes about these speculative views, or is he talking about any dispute? Well, in the um, in the text here, it's talking about this kind of speculative view. But in another sutta, um, he is asked, and I don't have that one right on the top of my head. 
he's asked, oh, I think it's also in the, in the um, Atakavaga, where he's asked, what are, what's the cause of quarrels and dispute? And it's, ultimately, it's traced back to this theme called, uh, or it, it's traced back through many, many levels of, um, you know, what, what, what leads to causes and disputes is, is um, attachment and aversion. And, and it, he goes back and back and back. And ultimately, he says, well, it all basically comes down to this theme, this term papancha. Um, which is which we will talk about in the second half uh, of my second lecture. I'll go into the, the issue of papancha with respect to views. And in that one, he seems to be saying that um, any quarrels are traced back to this notion of papancha and that there are three kinds of papancha, craving, conceit, and views. So uh, it may be that the quarrels come from larger than simply views, um, but again, I think some of this will kind of get pulled, wrapped together as we as we go through the, the day. Um, but in this one in particular that I um, was pointing to, he's talking specifically about this kind of speculative view. Yeah, Tony. <coughs> Maybe getting to this later, but when I read the the text, you should unravel what is false, or you should point out what is fact. I'm wondering whether there is any way around whatever that whatever that response might be being a view. In other words, what are the, is there a standard for truth and false, or fact and non-fact that? is not a view? Well, that's a really good question. I mean, I can't really answer that question. Um, but I d- there, th- there are ways, and I, I think I'm going to talk about this a little bit later around the issue of truth and false and what the Buddha really points to as truth in my understanding of what the Buddha is pointing to as truth. Um, I think when he's talking in this case, he's talking in conventional terms about, okay, what, what actually, you know, what can we point to? Um, you know, if somebody says, oh, those, uh, oh, I, there was one, for example, one, one uh, sutta where some, uh, one of the monks was saying, well, you know, you don't perform any miracles. And the Buddha said, well, here's a, here's a situation that what happened was, um, you know, I did this and said this. Oh, oh, he was he was predicting the. It, 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 this is hard for us to take in, but he was predicting the uh, future life of somebody, and um, and that that person, um, the person who was asking. I don't know the names. I wish I knew the names. Let's say person A, the Buddha, and person B. Uh, person A was asking the Buddha, you know, about this miracle business and didn't didn't want to. Was basically going to leave the order over it, and the Buddha said, "Well, there, there's, there's this person, person B, is going to die in a week, and his his destination will be such and such. And once he dies, find his body and ask him what his destination has been, and he will tell you what his destination has been." And so this guy, um, person A. 
uh, actually goes and warns the person, person B, that he's going to die in a week out of, at, by eating something, uh, some bad food. And um, and so the, he's really careful about his food, but he dies in a week. And then the the person A finds his body and goes and speaks to that person B, dead, this corpse. He speaks to the corpse. The corpse sits up, speaks to him, tells him where he has gone, and then falls back down. And the Buddha says, so was that a miracle? And the guy said, yeah, that was a miracle. (laughs) So, you know, I mean, that's a kind of a funny scenario, but in terms of, you know, pointing to what is truth and false, he was being accused, and he says, okay, let's look at the situation. You know, here's what happened, and... What would you would you consider that a miracle or not? So that's a kind of a way in which the Buddha responded to that that kind of dispraise. But it's in the conventional realm around around things. But I think that's a great question. I think that's a really great question because I keep coming I keep coming back to that too. So let's hold that in our minds um, and keep going. So the next section of the sutta um, is, so he's, he's, he's talked about praise and blame. And so the next section of the sutta, he points out to his monks, he said, there, there are all these things that people who are uninstructed, who are, who are normal, ordinary people, who don't have a sense of the depth of my teaching, there are certain things that these people, when speaking in praise of me, the Tathagata, would speak. And then he goes on and on and on about morality, about how people would see the morality of the Buddha. And that this would be a speaking in praise, a a right speaking in praise of the Buddha. Now, this is kind of interesting because of the sutta, nearly half is this stuff on morality. Um, And it's, you know, it's really detailed. You know, he talks about not playing games on board with eight or ten rows or playing games, imagining them in the air or throwing dice. I mean, he goes on and on about things that the Buddha doesn't do. Now, this section of the of the sutta is, um, I think it's about six pages in this handout. Uh, it goes on from pages one through six. Is um, what might be called the ethics division of the sutta. And in fact, the first 13 suttas in the Digha are called the section on morality. And according to Maurice Walsh, this section of the sutta, this morality section of the sutta, is repeated verbatim in every one of those 13 suttas. Now, in his translation, I didn't see where it would be. Often it says, you know, as in sutta one, paragraphs X through Y. Um, so I didn't actually see where it would have been 
put in each of those suttas, but, but he says that this same text is in all of the first 13 suttas. So it may, may well have been a separate kind of text, either one that had been added in, one that was added in later, or one that was kind of meant to be memorized, perhaps, by, uh, by monastics, because the set of um, ethical conduct is... In this sutta, it's being spoken of as this is the natural way in which the the Buddha behaves. Um, But it also might be seen as uh, rules of conduct for his monastic order, as as some set of rules of conduct. So in my um, researching and looking at this, um, I determined or decided for this day that this particular section, since it's not unique to this sutta, is not the particular thrust or aim of this particular sutta. So I'm going to pretty much ignore this section for today. We're not going to go into this into this aspect of the of the sutta. So we're pretty much going to start on page six. The next, um, the next aspect is the section on the set of speculative views. And in this regard, the Buddha says, and I'm reading from paragraph 28 on page 6, there are other things profound, difficult to realize, hard to understand, tranquilizing sweet not to be grasped at by mere not to be grasped by mere logic subtle comprehensible only by the wise these things the tathagata having him himself realized and seen them face to face hath set force forth and it is of them that they who would rightly praise the tathagata in accordance with the truth should speak so he set out the whole morality section as being trifling praise of the buddha but he says and now i'm getting ready to tell you how somebody who would speak in praise of the buddha would truly speak somebody with deep understanding and then he moves into this discussion of basically of wrong view of this is wrong view. So this is the bulk of the text. It goes from, um, in this handout, from pages 6 to 13. And in this section, he lists many speculative views and the grounds that people would use to support these views. So this is the main section that I'm going to talk about for the rest of this part of the discussion for the next 35 minutes or so. The last section of the sutta, the the last page and a half of the sutta, the Buddha reveals how these views arise governed by ignorance and craving and how one might transcend these views. And that is what I'll talk about in the second discussion section. So we're going to take 35 minutes to talk about six pages and uh, about an hour to talk about two pages. <laughs> so of, of, you know, of na- naturally, because there are so many views, 
We can't really go into them in detail. Um, but what I'd like to do is to kind of give you an overview of them and give you a sense of the kinds of grounds that the Buddha talked about as supporting the views. So this this in the Brahmajala handout begins. Did you have your hand up? Did you have a question? OK, uh, begins on page six um, with the 62 kinds of wrong view starting there. So he proceeds to enumerate the different speculative views. With each view, what he does is he basically states it or states something about what this view is about and then describes the reasons or the grounds that people might believe that view. It's often said of this sutta that there are 62 views described in this sutta. And in fact, up here it says the 62 kinds of wrong view. And I added that in here. Uh, that is what Bhikkhu Bodhi had put in his, in his translation, that that was the kind of heading of this section of the sutta. But in actuality, uh, the language of the sutta itself refers to grounds for views, and there are 62 grounds for a much fewer number of views. There are about eight classes of views that the Buddha describes, and that there are these 64 grounds that support these eight classes of views. So elsewhere in the suttas, and we'll come, we'll come to this um, later on, there's a place, in fact, where in the suttas it's described as, oh yes, in the 62 views described in the Brahmajala Sutta. So this misstating of the sutta happened early on. The misstating of the, the languaging of the sutta actually happened pretty early on. But the sutta itself is pretty clear with the language. It doesn't refer to these grounds as views themselves, but as, as, as grounds, as uh, places for reasons why these views would come to be. So these 62 grounds for views fall basically into two types. There's those that are um, associated with logic and reasoning. And there are those that are associated with meditative attainments. And I found this to be really interesting. Actually, the vast majority of the grounds for these views are very deep meditative attainments, primarily through concentration. So this, to me, serves as a, uh, a warning, a, uh, you know, a... Something to really reflect on that not to, not to even base views and opinions on direct meditative experience. To me, this recalls the story of the blind man and the elephant. Are you familiar with this story? Anyone not familiar with this story? Good. <laughs> I don't have time to describe it. It's in here, just in case you want to, to reread it. It's, it's in the, the handout. Um, and basically, this story uh, points to the 
um, you know, the misunderstanding a blind man has when he experiences a part of something, that the experience of something um, and then assumes there is a full understanding. So experiencing just the leg of the elephant with the hands and then assuming that is what an elephant is. So there's a, a experiencing something and then assuming, extrapolating erroneously from it. The sutta also points to, uh, that sutta of the, the elephant, also points to the um, one of the main drawbacks of holding the views, and that is this quarreling, um, that people just end up um, dissenting and quarreling about these various views. So these these 62 grounds fall into these basic two camps. And as we go through the um, the classes of views that are described by the view to the sutta, I'm going to go through a little bit, just pointing here and there to some of the grounds. So another thing that is interesting, um, I find in this sutta in general, uh, is that the Buddha does not directly critique the views in the sutta. He simply states them and states the grounds that they come from. Analayo, uh, who wrote the book Satipatthana, most of you I think are probably familiar with that work, he pointed out in that book, in, in the Satipatthana book, that the Buddha's interest in the views is not in the content. He is interested in looking at essentially the psychological underpinnings of the creation of views. And that is his interest. So that's what he goes into. He goes into the, these grounds and then toward the end of the sutta explains even in more detail how views come to be. So he does not directly critique the views. He simply puts them out. Now, to, uh, to be fair, in some ways, the putting out the views is in a way a critique because he, he points out letting essentially the statement, okay, there are these people who believe this and here are their meditative attainments that support their belief in that. And here are these people who believe this directly contradicting that. And here are the meditative attainments that they claim support that view you kind of get the picture, you know, that perhaps these meditative attainments are not sufficient to really uh, extrapolate to this kind of a view. So in the, um, I want to try to go through the, um, the views. So in the, what page is this on? Starting at the bottom of page three on the supplemental handout. There's an over, I have I start up with the overview of the classes of views. And this goes on for the next page. I've tried to, to kind of highlight them. So there's 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 eight basic classes that that I pulled out here. There's views based on um, 
there's there's the the sutta is structured first as okay these are views that are based in speculation about the past and these are views that are based in speculation about the future so those that are based in speculation about the past are eternalism partial eternalism extensionism equivocation and fortuitous origination and views based in speculation about the future are immortality annihilationism and happiness in this life so you've all found that section of the handout so i want to just go through these a little bit and looking at some of the uh, of what the grounds are any any questions or comments before i move into this section okay So for the eternalist, eternalists are basically those who proclaim both the soul and the world are eternal. And looking at the grounds, there's basically, there are four grounds. Three of them are meditative and one of them is rational. So the rationalist ground um, is, I'll read this out from the sutta itself. In this case, some recluse or Brahmin is addicted to logic and reasoning. He gives utterance to the following conclusion of his own, beaten out by his argumentation and based on his sophistry. Eternal is the soul and the world, giving birth to nothing new. The world, giving birth to nothing new, is steadfast as a mountain peak, as a pillar firmly fixed. And these living creatures, though they transmigrate and pass away, fall from one state of existence and spring up in another, yet they are forever and ever. So this is, this is someone who basically, in belief, has created or constructed this view. The meditative grounds for this is, and this again, this is a, in the sutta itself, Paragraph 31 on page 6. In the first place, some recluse or Brahmin, by means of ardor, of exertion, of application, of earnestness, of careful thought, reaches up to such rapture of heart that wrapped in heart he calls to mind his various dwelling places in times gone by, in one birth, in two, in three, in four, in five, etc., to the effect that there I had such a name, was of such and such a lineage and caste, lived on such food, experienced such and such planes and pet pleasures, etc. And when I fell from thence, I was reborn in such and such a place, in such and such a lineage, etc. Thus does he recollect in full detail, both of condition and custom, his various dwelling places in times gone by. And he says to himself, eternal is the world, eternal is the soul, and the world giving birth to nothing new, is steadfast as a mountain peak. Same conclusion the, uh, the rationalist came to. And why must that be so? Because I, by means of ardor of exertion of application of earnestness, by ardor of exertion of application of earnestness, of careful thought, wow, that's quite a sentence, <laughs> can reach up to such rapture of heart that wrapped in heart I can call to mind and in full detail, both of condition and of custom, my various dwelling places, it is by that that I know this, that the soul is eternal. Yeah, um, the mic. 
I don't really get the first how the first one is rational. It sounds pretty much like the second one only. You know, well, the first reason. one, the first one is just, but it's rationalist in the sense that um, there's no direct experience of anything. It's just that he thinks. He's thinking about it. He's got an idea in his mind. He thinks about it. He thinks, well, that makes sense. I like that thought. I think that is the way it is. So it's a it's a rationalist argu- argument rather than one based on uh, purportedly some direct experience here. So um, assuming, I mean, let's take as an assumption that this meditator has accurately seen past lives. It is understood in the Pali text that this is a... Uh, a capacity of deep states of concentration that one can accurately see, actually see, recall past lives. So assuming that this meditator has has that depth of attainment, the first thing he's doing is extrapolating kind of like the blind man with the elephants, that he's extrapolating based on what he's seen that this is the whole picture. So he's, he's taking the experience of the past and extrapolating it as continuing in the future. The other um, main thing that this meditator is doing, and this is, this is one that comes back over and over again in all the various views, he's assuming an existent being having taken that 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 this exists that there is an existent being that that exists that that there is a uh, that this soul is a thing it's a it's a stable it's permanent thing so this is imputing permanence to both the soul and the world That's yes. That's my, my understanding. It's the it's the that that right that that means there's a soul um, and that that this is the the whole picture basically. Yeah. So my understanding is that the the commentaries the suttas do not question the actual meditative attainment. I mean, there may be people who claim the meditative attainment who actually aren't don't have it, but assuming that they do. Now, I've never experienced anything like this, so I can't comment on that part. <laughs> but the, even given the um, taking as um, given that this person accurately saw past lives, the, the understanding is this is erroneous, an erroneous extrapolation. First, it's an erroneous extrapolation into the future of what was seen in the past and the erroneous imputing of permanence. Those are the two errors that the Buddha, that the commentaries point out. Okay, I get the permanence. What is the passage? Okay, I understand the... the um, giving permanence to the soul, but what is... So, so he saw the past. Yeah, the lives. The lives of the past. 
And he's inferring that because he saw back hundreds of thousands of years, that that means it will continue into the future for hundreds of thousands of years. As opposed to there being some process by which it might not continue into the future hundreds of thousands of years. Hmm. The rebirth. So the second, um, is there, oh, did you have a question? Okay. I don't want to go too much into the views. <laughs> we, could, we could. We could spend time on the views themselves, but uh, we'll see how far we get. I, I, it's, this is just me wondering if seeing future lives, is that only something that a Buddha can do, or is that also a meditative attainment? Because I know that the Buddha is able... You know the the um, I you know I, the Buddha the Buddha can what I understand the Buddha can do is to see when someone has died where they were reborn. I don't know the Buddha. I, does anybody recall that whether the Buddha claimed to be able to see the future? I. My understanding is that the claims of by the commentaries and in this in the commentaries here in particular if you want to if you want to read about the claims of omniscience they're in the commentaries here in this book <laughs> um but but um yeah i mean i think that, that my understanding of what the buddha claimed he could do was to see how beings are reborn based on causes and conditions. And there's many times in the suttas where somebody says, well, what, what is the result of this person's, you know, this person has died, where have they been reborn? And he can see that. But that's not seeing into the future. At least in my, my understanding. That's so I don't, I don't know that there's anything that supports the notion of the Buddha seeing into the future. I'm not, I'm not sure of that. Okay. Um, so the second, the second um, view, partial or class of views, partial eternalism, is basically stated as those who maintain that the soul and world are partly eternal and partly not. Now this one, if I had more time, I would go into this really fun, and I encourage you to read at some point um, on page seven. Uh, paragraphs two through six, so chapter two, paragraphs two, two through six, six describes essentially a, a creation myth. Um, it's the it's the creation myth of a god who basically, having uh, fallen into a world, on the, exp- the 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 understanding is that the the world consists of endless numbers of expansion and contraction of, of eons, and it's sometimes all of the earth goes away, all of earth element disappears. That's my understanding anyway, and that mostly people are reborn in these immaterial planes, and then when the world system expands again, the earth is created, and um, and then these beings tend to come out of those immaterial planes and get reborn in these realms. And the, the story is that the first one that's reborn in this realm basically wanders around saying, well, I must be God. I'm the only one here. 
And then after a long time, he uh, he says, wow, it's kind of lonely. I wish there'd be somebody here. And lo and behold, happenstantially, somebody, some being from another plane uh, who has exhausted their karma in that plane reappears in the plane of the Brahma. And the Brahma says, oh, I've created this being. And the other being who arose says, oh, I must have been created by him. So there's this this really interesting, amusing story. Um, so the, the understanding is about this one through meditative attainment. Somebody in this world sees back to a previous birth in which they were in that world with this Brahma and says, that, you know, oh, that being, that was God, that was the, that was God, and I am, that being is permanent. I fell out of that world, I'm here, I'm clearly an impermanent being subject to all this change. So there's some things that are permanent and some things that are impermanent. Some things that are, are, are eternal, some things that are not eternal. That's how this notion of eternal, partly eternal, partly non-eternal comes to be. Through meditative attainment. One of the ways through meditative attainment. This section is really fun. I encourage you to read it at some point. The myth, I think, is also interesting to reflect on because it points to, in that, in that mythological setting, a shared misperception that's going on. You know, there's the, there's the being that thinks he's God wandering around and all the beings that are, you know, born after him that think he's God. And there's this, this the, you know, the collusion comes together for this shared misunderstanding. And I think this is something that happens to us in our world. I mean, the shared misunderstanding, for instance, of self. <laughs> you know, we, we, we re- reinforce that. Re- we, we support it. It's not just an individual thing. It's a cultural thing. So I think that's an interesting aspect of that particular myth, that it points to uh, a shared misperception, not an individual misperception. Another way, and this one I want to highlight because to me this seems, this seems, this piece seems to be something that seems to be a common imputation. This is one that I have held in a way and in, in one that I've heard other people seem to hold. So here is this one. That which is called eye and ear and nose and tongue and body is a self which is impermanent, unstable, not eternal, subject to change. This is um, this is in that same section of partial eternalism. Yeah, it's the fourth round. I'm just trying. Um, so, paragraph 13. Thank you. But that which is called, okay, so that which is called eye, ear, nose, tongue, body is a self which is impermanent, unstable, not eternal, subject to change. But this which is called heart or mind or consciousness is a self which is permanent, steadfast, eternal, knows no change, and will remain forever and ever. 
So this, I think this one is interesting. I think this one points to uh, one of those areas where um, the grounds are not complete. Um, because that section is described as the logician's position. This is what the logician would come up. Out of reasoning, one would come up with that view. That body is impermanent, consciousness is permanent. But, you know, I've heard a lot of people in meditation, you know, experience a kind of recognizing the instability of the flux of of essentially of mind and body, but the knower, the knower is kind of felt as stable in a meditative experience. Felt as stable. The the one that knows, the one that experiences can be felt as stable in a kind of meditation. And so to me, it seems like this one easily could come out of meditative experience as well. It seems also that that this... um, Bhikkhu Bodhi points out that this section is also missing alternative grounds for a belief in a creator God, um, that, there, that there seem to be particularly historical, anthropological evidence for grounds for um, belief in a creator God that don't fall into this. The only source of a creator God here is this meditative attainment um, so, again, this section in particular, there seems to be some non-exhaustiveness. Uh, this is a particular area where it, it really feels like the sutta is not exhaustive. Yeah, Tony. So, so, so Mike. Can we get the second mic out. Let's put, put one on each side of the room. <laughs> so this this entity, this Knower is something abstracted from the from the experience from the meditative experience and then and then imputed you, yes okay yeah yeah so I'm going to go a little more quickly through um, some of these the rest of these um, so extensionism this is basically um, setting forth the infinite the finiteness or the infinity of the world. And there are four ways that this is seen. The world is finite. The world is infinite. The world is both finite and infinite. The world is neither finite nor infinite. And the grounds for the first three are said to be meditative attainment. That, that is basically they relate to a, deep, a state of deep meditation in which one can directly experience the infinity of consciousness, but that one particular person will experience it as a full infinity of consciousness. Another person might experience it as infinite in one direction, but not in another. (laughs) And so partially, you know, that means it's both finite and infinite. You know, it's infinite across, but not up and down. Um, So again, meditative attainment for the first three. And um, uh, the logician, upon hearing these different meditators um, claiming these different things will say, well, obviously it's neither finite nor infinite. You know, let's see how all these people are contradicting each other. And this is one I really think where the Buddha is kind of putting it out there. It's like, okay, these people say this in their meditation. These people say that in their meditation. They come up with directly opposing views. Maybe meditation is not the place to uh, use to come out with um, 
beliefs about the nature of reality, about the, the about the nature or the nature of uh, soul and self. I don't know. I, I probably shouldn't say not the place to come out with beliefs around nature of reality. But again, I'll get to that this second lecture. The fourth kind of view is equivocation. And this um, this one is um, not so much grounds for a views. They are the four grounds here are grounds for refusing to adopt a view. So th these people will say things like, I don't take it thus, I don't take it the other way, I advance no different opinion, and I don't deny your opinion, I don't say that it's neither that one nor the other, just kind of all, all around the, um, to not say clearly, you know, this is what I believe. Basically, the grounds for this is in realizing that one under, doesn't understand or see clearly. One of, the, one of the grounds is that in seeing that one doesn't understand or see clearly, one might make, say something wrong. And out of fear of saying something wrong, one equivocates. A skillful response would be, I don't know. Now, sometimes the Buddha was accused of being an equivocator. In, um, not in the handout, I didn't put this in the handout, um, the, but in that sutta, it's in that same sutta that is on the first couple of pages where basically, um, let's see, 63, nope, where is it? It's on at the page page two and three. That same sutta, at the end of that same sutta, in that sutta, basically the Buddha is is um, kind of being accused of being one who does not come down as standing on views. He's not declaring. He doesn't say. He he says. I don't, I don't declare anything about these views. And some people say, well, that's being, that's being an equivocator. And he says, we sh one, you should understand what I have declared as declared and what I have left undeclared as undeclared. What have I declared? Suffering and the end of suffering. What have I left undeclared? Questions of speculative views. Why? Why have I declared what I have declared and left undeclared what I have left undeclared? I have, I have declared suffering in the end of suffering because it is conducive to the holy life. I have left undeclared speculations on views because it is not conducive to the holy life, to living the holy life. Any, any comments or? No? Okay. Then the view of fortuitous origination, I won't go into that one. Um, and views based on immortality. There are many views based on immortality. It's interesting to me that in the views based on Im immortality in the sutta, basically they just enumerate many different ways people would look at immortality, but there are no grounds provided. 
um, the commentaries may provide some suggestions that, well, this particular meditative attainment might be grounds for that view, etc. But there aren't particularly grounds listed in the suttas about immortality. I want to get to the last two because they're a little more interesting, um, some more interesting things to talk about. The view of annihilationism. Um, so on, yeah, I'm, I'm on page four of nine in the supplement, uh, in the supplemental handout, um, going down to view number seven, annihilationism. And in the sutta, this is on page 12. Page 12 of the sutta. So this this basically is a, a view of that that they're held by those that maintain the cutting off or the destruction, the annihilation of a of a living being, of a, of a, an existent being. And in this one. Um, there, there's a series, I think, of four where the first one is um, basically it seems to be by reasoning. Um, the person sets forth a view. The, the, the soul has form. It's built of the elements. It's the offspring of father and mother. It's cut off and destroyed on the dissolution of the body and does not continue. So then the soul is annihilated. So this is basically a materialist perspective, that the soul and body are identical and that at the death of the body, there's the death of the soul. Um, The second one is based on meditative attainment, um, which is in response to that view. Someone says, there is, sir, such a soul as you described. That I do not deny. But But the whole soul is not then completely annihilated. For there is a further soul, divine, divine, having form, belonging to the sensuous plane, feeding on solid food. That you neither know nor perceive, but I know and have experienced it. Since this soul on the dissolution of the body is cut off and destroyed and does not continue after death, that, that, then it is that soul is annihilated. So, and then it goes on to, an even deeper level of meditative attainment where the guy says, well, you know, yeah, there's a soul like that, but there's an even deeper soul. And, and there's, well, yeah, there's a soul like that, but there's an even deeper, more profound soul. So the, the, the point I want to uh, address here, again, there's the meditative attainment, each one kind of contradicting the previous one. And also a little bit of a discussion um, that the Buddha was at times also accused of being an annihilationist. There is a reference. I didn't put this in the handout, but I'll give it to you uh, in Majjhima Nikaya, uh, number 22, uh, paragraph 37, um, is when he's, he's been accused. He's been accused of being an annihilationist. The distinction here in annihilationism, 
is that the the Buddha talks about in his understanding that that the annihilationists assume an existent being that is annihilated. That there is something that is there and then it's gone. And the Buddha's perspective is there is an ending of a process. There's not a being there to be annihilated. When the conditions are no longer arising, there's not a continuation of the process. So that's, that's a, a, a distinction that I think the Buddha even had trouble in his day having people to really understand. Um, that the, the process uh, comes to cessation because the conditions for its movement are no longer in place. Any, any comments on this, on this one? Yes, yes. And, you know, it, 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 it does in ways seem like annihilationism, the way people, you know, that, well, the process stops, doesn't that, is, does it, <laughs> isn't that annihilationism? And the, the distinction, as I understand it, is that it's not the annihilation of a being. That it, that's the, it's not the, uh, that there isn't a being to be annihilated. Yeah. So does, would this apply to these um, deeper soul levels as well as to the body? I don't know if you yes. know the answer. Well, yeah. so, so in terms of them being a process, yes, yes that's, that's what the Buddha is saying. Yes, that even those deeper levels of seeing uh, how the... Um, you know, the, the d- deeper levels of seeing. Essentially, the understanding I think is that the. Um, I think that the first the 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 jhanas, the material jhanas, are what people were describing. That that's the understanding of these um, grounds is is the experience of the of the material jhanas of seeing um, these. A soul, essentially, kind of a sense of consciousness that is not so connected to the physical plane, um, and that that the Buddha understands that is also being dependently arisen, subject to change. Marsha. So, so I did. So I had the thought. Um, so the, the Buddha's experience is that on? But doesn't So the Buddha's experiences also came, as I understand, from deep meditative experiences. So how come those aren't brought into question when we'll, other people's we'll, meditative? We'll talk about that this after the, the second lecture. We'll okay. talk a little bit more about that. <laughs> yeah. So I'm I'm puzzled by the statement that the process stops. It's I either the process never stops or 
the process is always stopping. Um, well, the, uh, the, the, the process, um, how to talk about this? She, she said, she said um, she's confused by the notion of the process stopping. That either the process never stops or it's always stopping. Is that what do you... Right, in, in that in every moment it's recreating, so there's a stop and a restart, and it just, it just so happens that in this moment it comes back looking like this particular set of patterns. I think that's that's a, a reasonable way to look at it except that there is there is a sense in the I mean it will restart based on past impulsion. And that's the process, the, you know, the karma process essentially that um based on causes and conditions the process keeps going in a moment of uh unbinding that karmic process is said to come to an end. That's that's my understanding. Does anybody else have any comments about that? Um, who have yeah it seems like the process uh, is this as a psychological sense of self, so that may be continually being. You know, well, that th- this gets into some very um, uh, deep questions around which there's not much res- resolution. Um, you know, in the kind of c- uh, commentarial understanding, um, in what it, what would be called parinibbana at the death of a person who's fully awakened there is a complete release of that process no further birth no further um and some people look at it more as just the process in this life whereas you know well the body doesn't disappear in full enlightenment you know it's not like that process really stops at full enlightenment so so from that standpoint it is the stopping of craving the stopping of clinging um, so in the, you know, in the commentarial literature and to some extent in the suttas, there is this understanding of at uh, the death of someone who's fully enlightened that the entire process comes to a complete end. I think that's a view. Yes, I would, I would think that's a view. That's that would be my take on that. <laughs> and that's actually something that I really found in this book. Looking at the commentaries, I found what the commentaries had was a view they were trying to hold to. And it shocked me that in a discussion of a sutta on speculative views, this would be what was going on. You know, there was even one place where, um, you know, the, there was one section, I can't remember what it was, uh, where they didn't have an answer. You know, that some of the commentaries are phrased in question and answer. Um, why, did the, why didn't the Buddha say this or why did the Buddha say that? And, and there's an answer, a response by the, by the, the commentator. And in one of them, there's, there's, the commentator doesn't have a very good answer. The commentator says, well, 
You could ask that question, but the Buddha was omniscient. Therefore, what he said was right. And I was my jaw dropped when I read that. Like, how can they do that? This wasn't very convincing to me. So, you know, I found the, the, the exploration into the world of the commentaries to be very interesting um, here. It, it is available through the Buddhist Publication Society. You can get it on online. Um, you can also get it um, through the, the um, Sri Lankan website, the Buddhist Publication Sri Lankan website, for a fraction of the cost. They ship it, ship it from Sri Lanka, and you pay for the shipping, but it's also in Sri Lankan dollars and is not very expensive. So it's cheaper. I ordered about five or six books. Um, which made the shipping, you know, cheaper. And this book cost me $8. I think it's about, you know, probably 15 or something. Um, I think you can get it from Pariyati Press. Um, so, so you can, you know, I would, it, I find the, the Sri Lankan website of these publications, of the Buddhist Publication Society, to be a good source of, of some hard-to-find books. I don't have the name of that website. Par- uh, Buddhist Publication Society. Google Buddhist Publication Society, and there will be a .lk at the end of the website for Lanka, Sri Lanka. Oh, here it is. www.bps.lk. E-P-S.lk. So I think it's time for a break. Let's take a break, um, and I'm just going to skip the last view. We won't uh, go into that one, and we'll head into the discussion on formulation of views in the in the afternoon.